0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold and it is time for Guy Talk Hour 2. I cannot wait because we had a snappy first hour We all were commenting during the break how quickly it went. And it did go quickly because so many great questions are coming in and they're still pouring in. So thank you. Get your questions in 877-933-2484. If you are unfamiliar with this segment of the week, it is a Q&A. You do the Q, and uh, we do the A. So that's how it works. My my uh, panel, my distinguished panel from left to right, is Dr. Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. Hey! That's the team. So what's the big meal on Christmas dinner? What what's what do you guys have?
1: Oh, in ours, it's... Is it, is it the same every year? First of all, answer that. Not, not for Christmas. It okay. is for Thanksgiving, but it isn't for Christmas. Okay. Like, Sometimes it's uh, a, a uh, standing rib roast. At other times, it's crab or lobster. Yeah, Ooh. nice. What Ooh, time? Wow. <laughs> what time? <laughs> I I fix it too.
2: Oh man, what do you do, Tom? Tom Parrish? Well, we have our grandkids coming from uh, Wisconsin, and so they all mac love mac and la- cheese. They love lasagna, <laughs> so we're having lasagna yeah. with French, you know, with uh, garlic bread and the whole works, and dessert. Yeah, Ooh. that sounds lovely too,
3: Jeff. We have had a transition tradition for a long time of doing fondue not Ooh. the not the cheese type but actually the hot oil type so we do steak and shrimp and chicken and nice potatoes and and actually my wife's family had the same tradition so we actually ended up getting married and we still do it today
0: oh this is a no-brainer then isn't it that is not thats any trip to er with a hot boiling uh, <laughs> no,
3: no accidents no issues um so yeah it's been all
0: safe yeah awesome well we've got a lot of great questions that are coming in the first one might be a little bit uh I, the preface from the question is, I'm, I'm looking to cause trouble. With, with, with a smiley <laughs> He's face.
1: He's our kind of person. Yeah, we a, like it. With, or
0: she. You know, it's, with a smiley face. With a smiley face. Yeah, so I like that. <laughs> all right, here's the, the question. There, it's a two-part question. The Bible says that we should give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and that God puts leaders in place. All mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So far, we all agree, right? Mm-hmm. Does that apply to corrupt and abusive
1: governments that overreach their powers? I think it goes down or goes back to our, our our faith in the sense that we are uh, to be obedient to God because we're not of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're to be obedient to them. While we are on this earth, we're to follow our leaders unless they compel us or require us to violate God's either stated commands or his moral will as Peter pointed out. So the idea is is that if if the government is compelling us to do something that's against God's will, we don't have an obligation to obey.
2: Mm. Right.
1: We stand on what the Lord has told us,
2: and we pray for good leaders, and we should always pray for yeah. our leaders, and the Lord may appoint them, but because the Lord appoints them doesn't always mean, with their free will, they're going to do the right thing. So there's a
1: place for the rest of us to stand up and say no. Mm. But having said that, we're to pray for Our leaders, regardless of what they are doing. We're to pray for them regardless. Amen.
3: And it says, I think one of the core passages of this particular issue is from Romans 13. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. He's the one who designed government systems, right? The authority that exists have been established by God. So we as Christians should be model citizens, up until the point, like you were talking about, yeah. uh, when when your government asks you to do something unbiblical, like don't pray to God, bow down to the statue of mm-hmm. the king instead of to God, or like Peter in Acts, I think it's five, where it says, uh, we commanded you not to preach in this name anymore. And Peter says, shall we obey God That's what or I was referring man, to, yeah. right? That's I what you're referring to. I two
2: dangers for believers. Uh, one danger is to capitulate to the government and just get along to get along so you do what the government says and not bring it up the other one is to retreat to a monastery or go live out in the Mm -hmm. desert we want to withdraw from all of it i think the bible is saying you can't do either one that's not the goal the goal is respect what's there you know obey what you can but when they're not doing the lord's will you still have a place to speak up and speak my word and it says,
3: like 1 Peter 2 is another passage where it says, Submit yourself to the Lord for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether emperor or supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Yep. It doesn't say submit only to righteous right. authority. He says submit to the authority. Hopefully, your government understands the biblical definition of right and wrong, because when they don't, Really bad things end up happening. Mm. Tom
0: Parrish, you just got disinvited to my place in the desert.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I've always wanted to go
0: out there. I know, but I mean, I heard you blurt that out. So um, anyway. Okay. Here's part two of the question. Should the U.S. then resubmit to British rule because the founders rebelled against God's appointed leader?
3: I love this question. I have... Spent hours talking to people about this very question, question: that if we are to submit to the governing authorities that God has established, was the revolution somehow? Uh, if if you are a strong Bible believing Christian, should you have been part of that revolution? Now, obviously, God has used the United States of America that revolution in the events sense in in amazing ways in the world. And the United States of America is one of the most Christian nations in in all the world. Uh, so, what good has come of it is not part of the question. But the question is, should the citizens have rebelled? Remember, they rebelled over a half a cent tax on a box of tea. Um, my goodness, w- w- what should we be doing today because of our government's demand on on us today? Uh, but that's a very interesting question, to submit or not to submit. I'm sure Christians in that day
2: needed to an- answer that question for themselves. Good thought. Yeah. I think the governments, like the British government uh, and King George, there was much more than the tax issue that was going on. That's right. And I think it comes down to the fact that when do the leaders go to the people who basically are the people that support them in their leadership role and repent for their mistakes? Now, the Bible doesn't talk about that, except when you talk about King David and, and that, of course, in the Old Testament. But I think one of the problems today is even church leaders don't understand that we are human beings and we have to be submissive to the Lord. And listen to our congregations doesn't mean we violate the word of God. But listen to when they have concerns, take them seriously, and repent when we have to, and make things right.
1: People need to see Jesus in us. My sense of the judgment of nations that the Bible speaks about is actually the judgment of leaders of nations Mm -hmm. that are going to, as you referred to, I mean, may not be right at this moment, but they are going to face a judgment. Those who have had significant responsibility over large numbers of people— are held and and uh, are going to be held accountable for that leadership.
2: Yep,
3: I, I think one of the issues that when we start saying, "Well, it's somehow God ordains us to change government or work within government and change," look, we should always stand for what is right. We should always stand for what is righteous. Any public policy that goes against the Word of God and the truth of God's Word, we should oppose, and we should support those that support the biblical way. Um, at, at the same time. The, 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 the mission of the church is not the redemption of governments. No, no. The mission of the church is the salvation of men, right? And mm-hmm. and that's what we should be primarily concerned with. I love the people who are fighting the good fight in politics and in government from a biblical perspective. Love it. I think we need more of those kind of people. And we as citizens should be active in understanding what our government is doing and voting for those who stand for righteousness over those who don't. Um, And we should all be active. But in the end, the mission of the church is the salvation of men, not redemption of Mm. governments.
1: And we as followers of Christ, being citizens of heaven, are seen, as Scripture says, foreigners, aliens in a foreign land. We're called into the world to minister to the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nicely done, gentlemen. Really. I like that. All right. This next question I love.
0: God loves us so much that he gave his only son for us.
2: Why does God love us so much? It is simply his nature. Oh. There is nothing in us that produces a love within him. It is his simple nature to love us despite who we are. And he grieves when we don't respond to him. He rejoices when we do. I think so he, oh. it's not something I can offer him. It's something that he, just who he is. It's his character. Yeah. I think the only earthly
3: picture that we can use to help us understand that is when we come together as a couple, a male and a female, and make a child. And we love that child. I think every parent understands that you would give up anything for that child um, because you love them so much. You made them. I think, in a way, that's a picture of God's love for mankind. We, We are the image of God. He made mankind, and he
0: loves us because he made us. Nicely done. All right, next question. Is it Satan's own trinity attempt to have himself, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to counter the Lord's trinity? The unholy trinity, it's called.
3: Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're, I think the, the question is spot on. It is often called the counterfeit or the unholy trinity, and those are the three
0: main bad characters of the end times, yeah, right?
3: right? So, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question about government. What was the right thing to do when government tells you that you cannot have church in a building like they did during COVID?
3: Hmm. John MacArthur made a movie on really? this. And I, anybody remember the name of that movie? Uh, it was about...
1: I always had a strong stand on it. He did. He he
3: fought the government and went all the way. It It was in the legal system. It was looking like the elders and the pastors of... What's the name of his church out in California? Uh, Grace. Grace Church in California, uh, that these guys might be fined huge amounts yeah. and or end up in jail. And they said, no, we're going to meet. Uh, it's a great movie. It's a great story. And they make the biblical case for what they were doing. So uh, watch that movie. I, I, I'll, I'll search for it and come up with the name of it.
0: Mm. Yeah. So a church couldn't be open, but liquor stores and cannabis stores could? <gasps> it's Crazy, isn't it? I don't know. Mm. You tell me.
1: Well, you look what the government is doing right now. They're going to be forcing Chick-fil-A, I think it's in New York, um, to open up on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Now, it, for for our people that are listening, uh, Chick-fil-A is it's a Christian organization. They've made a commitment. They have a value that they will not open up on Sunday. So there's legislation right now to force them to do it. But the interesting thing is... I thought is, we were the land of the free. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the seven... Um, stores that, that are affected are actually on their freeways for the rest stops. And so the, they're, they're trying to say now, well, we've got to make sure it's available to travelers who are traveling on Sunday. Mm. Yet they signed the contract, which Chick-fil-A won the contract to service people, and the government knew full well that they didn't open up on Sunday. So you wonder if this is just another subtle way to chip away at Christianity.
3: Absolutely. Uh, The name of that movie, by the way, is called The Essential Church, Mm. and you can actually go to EssentialChurchMovie.com and stream it over the internet.
0: Mm. There you go. All right. Guy talk or guys who talk, men who have wisdom uh, are all here ready to answer your question. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Please send your question over. There's so many great questions coming in, and we've got time for your question. We'll be right back. Oh, there's so much sadness and desperation and loneliness, especially at Christmas time. It seems to me that there is almost like a big magnifying glass on the world, and we see problems just magnified, and we see people in their desperate situations almost worse than ever. But there is something we can do about it. And when we think of the story of Jesus, that is the story of hope. And if you have a story to tell, and you can give hope to someone this year by sharing their story, we want you to do it. You can go do that at myfaithradio.com. I encourage you to do it. Welcome back. I'm looking left to right. I've got to my left, say your name. Dr. V- B. Dr. B. <laughs> Just trying to keep you guys on your toes. Let's move over. Tom P. Tom P. And Jeff V. Yeah. So when they hear you say your name, it maybe yeah. Greg makes it more yeah. easy to identify, oh, that's Greg B. talking mm-hmm. or that's Jeff V. talking. Yeah. Right. So thank you for that. All right. My friend doesn't believe in the rapture and says it's a relatively new concept. This
3: is a common argument. Um, this goes to a guy by the name of John Darby, who supposedly learned it from Margaret MacDonald, which was written about in a book uh, written a few decades ago that made the case that the rapture is a new teaching and that it wasn't taught before that. The, the issue is, is that you can actually find a clear pre-tribulational teaching uh, in every century, going back to the third century, where there's a guy by the name of Ephraim the Syrian who says that the church is going to be caught up to heaven prior to the tribulation that is going to come upon the world. Well, that's the third century, and that was a queer pre teaching. But I would argue it's not all that relevant. What anybody has taught about the rapture over the last 2,000 years, what is relevant is what the Bible teaches, right. and we should go to the Scripture to get our doctrine for everything.
2: Yeah, and I would, I would jump in here, because I'm not a big rapture person, and I do believe in it, but I'll tell you why. Yes, it's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5. I believe that with all my heart. What I don't believe in is the way people have piecemealed it together with other parts of Scripture when it isn't within the same context, and, and so... Yes, I believe that the Lord is going to return. We're going to be taken up in the air. I believe all that's going to happen. I look at them, though, as individual pieces, not as a flowing picture because I don't have the whole picture. And I think too too much of the teaching I hear today on the Internet, on books that comes out, is that the preachers that are pushing this heavily have a whole formula laid out. And all I'm saying is I don't see the whole formula the way they it out. I see pieces of it. And I wish they'd talk about it as the pieces, not as this is all that's going to happen all at one time. And and by the way, we've talked about this a number of times, Tom and I. And the key is, do you have
3: hope that Christ wins in the end and that you're going to spend eternity with Christ?
0: There's your starting point right there. Absolutely. All right, the next question is, do we know what happened to Joseph? Is he ever referenced after Jesus starts his ministry? And if I could just add one thing in from... Uh, the sermon last week at church, the pastor pointed out in um, Matthew chapter two, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, he says, "Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt." You notice he didn't say, "Take your son and your wife and go to Egypt." Good point. I thought that wow. was really interesting.
2: Yeah,
0: he is still in a very much a
2: servant position, isn't he? Mm -hmm. That's what I love about the Bible. The consistency of what it teaches us is there. My problem as a pastor and one who studies the Word is being inconsistent with it. I have to keep working to be consistent because it does say that, and it fits with all the rest of the Scripture. That's why I don't like any Scripture verse taken out of the context of what it's saying, and I want to be careful with that because I can really make a mistake. You know, we, we actually don't have much. After he returns
3: from Egypt, we know that they go to Nazareth. We know the only other account that we have of Jesus' childhood and and really Joseph is when they go to Jerusalem when he's, I, I believe scripture says, 12 years old, right? And they actually leave him behind for a while and they have to go back and grab him and goes, where have you been, Jesus? He goes, well, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And he was actually teaching the rabbis there. Um, but then we don't have anything else about Joseph that I know of in the rest of the gospel accounts. So what happened to him? We, we just don't know.
1: I find it interesting that Jesus is recognized as the son of, uh, of, of the family of Joseph by the ruling elders, right. the Jewish ruling elders. So there must—I've always wondered, there must have been something about Joseph that was pretty unique, that he was remembered after his death like this that they knew who he was. Yeah. So, you, well, know, you know, it's th- one of those things that, you know, like Bill, he's going to make sure everything is done with tone in heaven so he understands what it was meant. Well, I'm going to ask that question. Yeah, I'm going to the tone seminar. <laughs>
2: I'm, 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 I'm preaching on that very text. Probably, we have Sunday morning and then we have uh, afternoon services, 5 o'clock. Two different messages. But I am preaching on that text. And the one thing that's really hit me is that Joseph is the epitome of letting the Lord be the Lord over his life. He not only believed for salvation, you know, with what he had up to that point as it was revealed to the Jews, but who among us would be willing to put up with the ridicule, the the fun making, the people saying you're stupid to take on this woman that had sex with another man because nobody's going to buy into, well, she's of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the babies of the Holy Spirit. This man obeyed even when it was terribly tough. And I admire that. And that's really what I want in my life. Will I let Jesus be Lord? when the going gets tough, and we see in Joseph somebody who really did.
1: Yes, it spoke you
2: know, to his character. Mm-hmm.
3: Definitely. One of the common questions, by the way, is where was Joseph at the death of Jesus? Where was he at the cross? We see Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, uh, but we do not see the father. Some have speculated that he probably died uh, sometime during Jesus' life, and that's why he wasn't there, but we just don't know. Yeah, he
0: certainly had to believe something pretty serious that Mary is is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Then he had to believe in something pretty serious again. Oh. Get up and take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. Yeah, and, it's
3: pretty and compelling that an
1: angel speaks to you about yeah. that yeah. issue.
0: But no, he did both, didn't he? He did both. Yeah, he believed God. Yeah, exactly. He did, yeah. All right, next question, gentlemen. After reading about Saul's, uh, Saul persecuting the Christians in Acts and then his conversion and his name change to Paul, his letters later in the Bible are so deep. I'm curious about his getting from point A to point B. His conversion and the scales falling from his eyes
1: must have been very revealing to him. Can you fill in that gap for me? Well, he sat under the feet of Gamal. He was a theologian in his own time. Now he looks back on what he's learned through the lens now of what Jesus did on the cross and so he can speak to those issues because he was very familiar with them even though he was unsaved at one time and now he sees it differently and so he's able to 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 bring in that knowledge and baptize it if you will with an understanding of what it really means let me give a picture
2: of this greg cuz you're right <coughs> in the money i'm a photographer i've done professional as well as uh, videography Uh, all my life, and I love doing that stuff. You put a filter on your lens, it changes dramatically what you're seeing. And that filter is exactly what you're talking about. Paul got a new filter for understanding the truth. He met Mm -hmm. the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He spent 14 years, you know, literally studying, and he was around the apostles. And he got on a whole new folder of understanding. And when he speaks, yes, his ratings are deep. Uh, He was a brilliant guy, but he was brilliant under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, and look how his writings have so affected us today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was called
3: Paul. He starts many of his letters this way: "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God as the apostle to the Gentiles." Um, so he, you know, was definitely called by God, and he recounts that that uh, day on the road to Damascus a couple times in the book of in the book of Acts, and he explains what that event meant to him.
0: All right, this question I missed. So let me get to it in Job. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 21, Eliphaz is visited in a dream by a spirit he couldn't discern, and it caused him great fear. Was this spirit Satan? In other examples of heavenly spirits that appear, I want to say they follow up with their, their arrival with a word along the lines of, do not be afraid. So this makes me think Eliphaz was not visited by a spirit from God. That's Job chapter 4, verses 12 to 21. Is he visited by a spirit he couldn't discern and caused him great fear? Was this spirit Satan? I hear a lot of pages turn. Is it my turn to talk? Yeah. Fill <laughs> <it, laughs> <my, laughs> time? <my, my, laughs> sing a show tune. Do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody wants to hear me sing. Okay. My, might lose some uh, friends there that are listening.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. It's a really good point that the question makes because when a spirit of the Lord comes or an angel of the Lord comes there's there's never mistaking it. Right. I cannot think of a case where a messenger from God comes to someone on earth and they're wondering about what this who this messenger is or where they're from, right? From the angel of the Lord that appears to uh to uh Joshua to uh, the presence of the Lord that met with Moses face to face, to the Lord in the burning bush, to uh, God presenting Himself to Abraham, uh, uh, and and on and on. John has a vision of an angel in the Book of Revelation, and he falls down, and the angel says, "No, no, 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 get up! I'm a fellow servant. Worship God alone." But there's never any question. So I, I think the premise of the question is actually very, very
2: good. Um, I'm reading it right now. You guys got anything yet? Yeah. The- I have worked with a lot of people that have had uh, dreams and visions like you're talking about, Bill. Uh, they come to me for guidance or help, whatever. And the one thing I've taught them is this. you know, I have one gentleman who has come to me quite often, and he's constantly having dreams of an angel coming to him and telling him to do something. But it, like he said, there's fear involved. And so I simply say, the moment that angel appears, if you're able to talk in your dream, and he says he can then ask him to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Because the demonic can't do that. They'll masquerade as angel of the light. They don't have the power. And I do that with people that come to me that have demonic issues as well. Uh, but it's a tough one because we, there is so much demonic in our culture, and we don't recognize it, and people are getting drawn into it. And I think that's where we see a lot of these young people with such problems today, and some of them committing suicide because they're hearing voices, uh, they're feeling they're worthless, and uh, the demons are having a good time. I'm, I'm reading on after the
3: Spirit appears, and this is what the Spirit says, okay? So it doesn't identify it, but we're going to try to identify it from what it says. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servant, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay? It goes on to say, call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Um, this sure sounds like a messenger from, from the Lord to me, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Could be.
0: So. I like that. So as you guys think about your your life of sharing Christ with people, can you identify someone, does somebody come to mind of who was a really hard sell, who really was hostile against you, pushed against you, and you thought, oh, this is this is never going to work. <laughs> They're never going to hear the truth or... I don't know if God will ever open up their heart to receive salvation. And then they did. Yes. Do you have someone in mind, Tom?
2: Uh, I mean, without naming names. No, I've, I've got several. I had a gentleman in my first church who had been an alcoholic since age 12. Hmm. He was in his 60s. He was a problem for word one. He would, on Sunday morning, he'd stand up and start singing in the middle of the sermon. So, I mean, we had issues with this guy, and his family was struggling with alcohol. He was in and out of detox. And I'd always try to help him. And the last time he was in detox, uh, he was in real trouble because I think he had he and his daughter gotten in a fight. And I said to him, Until you get serious about Jesus, you know, nothing's gonna happen. He said, When Jesus appears to me, then I'll get serious. Guess what happened that night? Jesus appeared to him that night, and from the neck for the next five years, he was sober. He was out preaching and teaching people, and he was working with AA to help people come out of it. And he said, that's what changed my entire life. And even his wife said, he's a different man than he was, you know, before that.
1: I've worked with with men, I'm thinking in one in particular, who um, asked question after question and pushed back on everything that I shared from Scripture. And I, I came to the same conclusion, Bill. I don't know how this guy's ever going to come to the Lord. But over the course of time... Um, as I kept seeing him and he kept showing up at various studies and the rest, I just saw him change, and it was a gradual change that I can only attribute to the Holy Spirit, whose Scripture says convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it wasn't any argument that I gave him. Mm -hmm. The only thing I did was be consistent. That's all I did. But the Spirit of God is what worked on him, and he finally came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mm. I have a couple
3: people that i know that are kind of the perpetual skeptic you know they're they're they never can seem to accept the truth of god's word but i think they claim a a faith i mean there's and you know i can't see their heart so they seem to claim a faith but they're they seem always to be doubting and questioning the word of god uh the people that i know that have rejected god outright um I, I don't have an example of one of them. I, I had an uncle, and he's he's gone now. And we used to have uh, conversations about the Lord, and he typically ended it with a line, something like, oh, I don't care where I go, I've got friends in both places. And that was kind of always the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he's passed away now and never did, accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I,
1: I'm dealing with somebody right now who's been through Phase 1 of Heart of Warrior, Phase 2 and now is going through ground zero, which is all about discipleship. But he repeatedly says that he does not have a vibrant living relationship with God. But he keeps coming. And so based on my previous experience of what I've just conveyed here, I know that God is at work in him. The very fact that he keeps showing up, it gives me hope that there's going to be a day when I'm going to hear from him I now have a vital relationship with Christ because salvation is not of you and I. It's of the Holy Spirit, and it's the conviction of the Spirit that brings them to the cross.
2: first 10 years of my ministry almost killed me, and I'm serious, about destroyed my marriage, <clears throat> my family, me, because I was awake at night trying to save people. Hmm. I mean, I was constantly trying to get people saved. And I remember after prayer one day, in a lot of tears, uh, I felt the Lord speak to my heart. Didn't hear a voice, but this is the impression I got. The impression was, Tom, you're not the Savior. Stop it. Your job is to give invitations and opportunities to people through my word. Mm. And the moment I did that, which is your what you're talking about, I watched things begin to change. And so I became more diligent at inviting people and talking to people. And I don't care if you told me once a thousand times, you're going to get a thousand the first invitation. And I've seen people finally come to faith.
1: It's been astounding. Hey, you know, I've come to this fairly recently, I'd say within the last several years, that that People are essentially a skeptic or a cynic, and what I've learned in terms of the gospel presentation with a skeptic, you simply answer the questions they're asking and no more. And with the cynic, you simply question the answers they're giving and no more. So the point is, is that the temptation is to regurgitate everything you know to the skeptic. As soon as the door is open and all you leave is a terrible smell and stench, no wonder they don't come back. But if you can practice the discipline of simply answering the question that they're asking, I've seen it over and over again. They come back and they ask a deeper question, a deeper question. All of a sudden, you're having level three conversations. That's the spirit of God at Mm. work. And you just got to be faithful to answer the question.
0: All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more Guy Talk. Let me know what you have. I bet you got a question for us. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
1: It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno.
0: Welcome back to the show. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We uh, try to answer questions. You provide them. We try to answer them. 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. A follower of the Hebrew Roots Movement tells me Paul didn't write scripture. Paul wrote letters. Paul quoted scriptures. Uh, how should I respond? I taught a class
3: once called Law versus Grace, where we talked about how Christians view the laws. I had a Hebrew Roots Movement person in my class that just sent email after email, question after question, trying to... Basically, to convince me that as a New Testament believer, we were still supposed to follow all of the customs and laws and festivals and stuff that are in the Old Testament at, that the Jews were responsible for, and um, it's it was it was quite a discussion. But I finally figured out that when I would send him verses written by Paul, that he actually didn't see Paul's words as scripture. He did not see Paul's words as being from God. And so that was the core issue that then we then discussed for the rest of the class. Are Paul's letters the word of God? Those letters, I would argue, that are in Ephesians and Romans and Corinthians and all the rest of Paul's letters are just as much God's word as the letters in red in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John.
2: Absolutely. And that's a hurdle that people need to get over. We need to help them because... I've had people say to me, look, I'm going to believe what Jesus said, but I don't believe what Paul says and the other ones. And and I said, then you're not believing Jesus because he's the author of the whole thing. All right. As late as the
0: 1960s, some European countries identify themselves as Lutheran, and some other countries identify themselves as Protestants. What is the difference between the two? Is there a difference between the two?
2: I think it's more has to do with their tradition or their heritage and how strong the church had an influence in those countries, because I would not, there are only a few countries I know of that would everly call themselves Lutherans. Most of them would either call themselves Protestants, Episcopalians, Roman Catholic, and there was a strong movement on that. I prefer they talk about being Christian without making it denominational, Mm. but uh there probably is no different. It's just a heritage thing that they picked up on and driven forward. Well, the word
1: Protestant, its root word is protest. Yes, and so people protested the Roman Catholic um, uh, faith um, and, and about grace, and so they were Protestants. But the Lutherans were specifically followers of Luther.
0: Yeah. All right, First John five seventeen. We might have talked about this before. It sounds vaguely familiar, but. What sin is he talking about that ends in death? And if he has done that, there is no use praying for him. First John five seventeen.
3: Well, as we look and look
0: that up, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. There is sin uh, that does not lead to death.
1: One sin that leads to death is unbelief. Yeah, yeah. and so if you. If you do not believe that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, and, and that he ascended into heaven, if you, if you refuse to believe that, that's a sin unto death. First, spiritual death. Well, We're all going to have physical death. It's pointing point for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But he's talking about spiritual death. So that's also what I believe is meant by blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's unforgivable is a total unbelief of God's gift of salvation.
2: I'd agree with Craig. I don't know mm. anything else that would uh highlight that any better. Maybe Jeff, you got something
3: no, I would that's where I was going to go that we know that the the one sin that leads to death, eternal death, that spiritual death that you were talking about is the rejection of the Messiah, right. so you you in unbelief. You are sent to the lake of fire, and that's the only uh, sin that keeps you from being saved or keeps you from going
2: to heaven. So that's
3: exactly where I was going to go
2: with I've seen people right on their deathbed that I've been with who were unbelievers, and I've witnessed two, others have witnessed two. And at the last moment, they would say to me, oh, my, Jesus is stretching out his hand to me. And my response is, take it and confess (laughs) it. That's good
3: advice, by the way. (laughs) And, And I have watched
2: them die. Literally wow. a minute or two later, my conviction is this, like you're saying, Greg, only rejection of Jesus is the ultimate sin. He is there even at the very end. Just yeah. like you mentioned your kids earlier, I would be right there at my kids at the last minute. I don't care how they lived or what Absolutely. they did, reaching out and offering them redemption, salvation or whatever. And if I can do that as a human, how much more can the Lord do that for all of us?
3: Second Thessalonians 2 says that they perish because they refuse to love the truth. And thus be saved. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Faith is the dividing line between eternal life and eternal
0: death. Yeah. This text just came in. The king of Norway made a declaration that Lutheran was the church of Norway. It has been ever since.
2: Hmm. Well, didn't he didn't call me. You were not consulted. I was not consulted on that one, and that's fine. That's egregious. If they want to do that in Norway, that's fine for them. Uh, But Christianity is not designed to be a national government. It -hmm. is designed to be a salvation and living a new life, and then governments form out of that. But. If that's what the King of Norway wants to say, I'm not going to argue with it. By the way, this is
3: exactly what the First Amendment of, the, of our Constitution was all about, this idea of separation as church and state as it's come to be known as, which is actually not the language of right. the Constitution. Uh, it was meant to keep government out of religion and from establishing an official religion of the state, like Norway, like the Church of England, like other countries that have declared a certain religion to be the state religion, and you couldn't practice anything else that was what the constitu- the founders of our constitution meant government you cannot establish a religion and then it goes on to say nor prevent the free exercise thereof yeah. so it this whole idea this this phrase separation of church and state has been has been radically redefined to mean what it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that christianity cannot influence Government, it has for 250 years in our country, should continue to influence our government. Uh, What that constitutional amendment was meant to do was to keep government from establishing an official
1: religion. I have a, a close friend that has an international reputation. If I mentioned his name, you know him right away. He refuses to call himself a Christian because of the connotations associated with it, he calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ, which actually goes back to the whole issue is, you know, you're asked, well, what denomination do you belong to? Well, I'm a Lutheran or I'm a Baptist. I now answer that question, well, I'm a follower of Christ that happened to be a part of this particular denomination.
3: Do you know what Christian means in the Greek? It means a follower of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that means
0: he, yeah. he can, You can call yourself
3: a Christian and that means I'm, I'm a follower of Christ.
0: All right, we're going to take a break, come back with more Guy Talk. We still have time for your question. Maybe you even have a question about the time of year we're in. And we're going to uh, be right back with uh, Dr. B., Tom P., and Greg V. 877-933-2484. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. All right, we're down to our last 10 minutes of Guy Talk. It's been a lovely couple of hours, and your questions have been fantastic. So if you still want to ask a question, please shoot it over, 877-933-2484. I was wondering, guys, if you have any self-diagnostic tool that you use every year or a couple times a year to try to measure where you're at in your faith journey, where you're at with the Lord. I've got an answer, but I'm going last.
2: (laughs) If we're wise, the three of us will say it's our wives. You know, it's the best diagnostic tool. But I think it's just going back to the fundamentals for me. I go back and I try to look at the Word of God again with fresh eyes. And, uh, And I encourage people. I try to read through complete chapters of the Bible, you know, in one or two settings so that I get a better feel for it. That's good for me. And then I try to associate with men like this.
1: I have two tools that I use on an annual basis. One of them is called the Five Habits Checklist that measures uh, where you're at on a number of different factors. Um, First of all, my mentor, J. Robert Clinton, identified there were six um, characteristics of people who finished well. And so this Five Habits Checklist is built on that to measure that, to see where you stand. The second one I developed myself, which is Taking the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a continuum of each of the nine elements of the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. On one end of the continuum, you have none of it. On the other end, you have all of it. Mm -hmm. And then measuring yourself where you're at. But most importantly, giving to somebody who knows you well, like often your wife, and ask her to evaluate you where you're at in terms of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's often a stark reality, but measuring yourself, but not only where you're at in that continuum, which direction are you headed? Yeah. Can I break in
0: yeah. right now? Yeah. Because that's exactly what I was going to say. Because I, I look at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and I ask myself, this year, Have have I been more loving? Have I been more yeah. joyful? Yeah. Have I had more peace? Have I been kinder? Have I had more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control? And I just answer myself as honestly as I can. That's great. And there's often, you know, years or every six months, I don't score well. And then I go, all right, there's my little diagnostic wake-up call.
1: Well, that's the fruit that should be manifested, and it's always an indicator of what's really going on in your heart. To what degree are these elements of the fruit of the Spirit real in my life, which is what you're talking about, Bill.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I had the fruit of the spirit up as well uh, as a measure. I'm a, I, I hate self-assessment, <laughs> I the personality tests or the, you know, personality inventories. And I, I, I never like taking those. So I'm not an annual kind of person. And maybe I, maybe this is useful and I should do this every <laughs> year at the end of the year. I don't make a new year's resolution either, by the way. So I don't know if you guys do. Uh, but I, I, I do this often. I mean, I, you know, am I displaying patience right now? Am I, do I truly have joy today? Yeah. And so maybe I do it, you know, regularly, constantly, you know, it's like, ah, I have frustration. I am not showing a lot of joy now. Okay. I better, you know, that's, I better trust in the word. I better, you know, plug into the the Galatians 2.20. I better trust him with all my heart, you know, kind of thing. So I think it's a continual thing. I'm not a once-a-year kind of guy, I, and maybe it's because I just hate. I, I, if you gave me your test that you were talking about, it sounds great, by the way, because that's exactly where I was going on the Fruit of the Spirit stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't want to take it.
1: <laughs> you know, when I take men through Phase 1, which is all about the compass, they put together a personal battle plan and a six-month implementation strategy, and I tell them, this is a living document. Every year you should be revisiting this and find out where you're at and what you need to do uh, in light of your battle plan. Phase 2, which is the map is a is a personal life mandate, I asked them to do the same thing. How are you measuring up to the mandate Do you feel God's given you? That's another tool to evaluate where you're at. Mm. all right, listening to the show, my question
0: most likely goes to Pastor Tom on his deathbed. My dad was in a coma and suddenly sat up and stretched his arms out, and his eyes were wide open. My brother and I helped him lay back down. He didn't pass on until the next day. What do you think could have been happening? He never seemed to be a believer. Have you ever witnessed this on a deathbed?
2: I have. And the reason I can, let's put it this way. Again, I believe that when those things happen, and I've had many hospice nurses, because as you guys know, I wrote a book about this. I've had many hospice nurses contact me and say, I've seen this over and over and over. I didn't know who to talk to. Thank you that I can talk to you. Yes, I believe the Lord was there in some form. I can't describe what it's exactly but somehow he spoke to your dad's heart, and he gave him an opportunity. And you don't have to die necessarily on the spot. But what happens is that, and, and I had one gentleman like this, and when he died, his daughter said, this is the first time I felt peace come over this room, that 30 minutes before he died when he opened his eyes like that. And now I've never experienced that before. So something's going on. It's in the spiritual realm. I don't fully understand it, but I know this. That Jesus is faithful and he is there reaching out to people regardless. Mm hmm.
0: Nicely done. All right, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, I, I would just love to hear some of your thoughts uh, regarding your, your uh, thoughts when it comes to Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Tell me what your heart does when you think of uh, Jesus coming in flesh into this world.
3: There's a little video. It was done by a church, I think, in New Zealand. It's a bunch of little kids, and they're all kind of angels in heaven, and God says he's going to send his son down to earth. And uh, it's very cute. And every year I watch it, and every year I cry whenever I see it. You sent one... me that video. I would cry, too. I, you beautiful. do. Yeah. At one point, it says... Uh, you're sending him to a manger, not as a king, uh, to a peasant girl? You know, what are you thinking, God, kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And it's so cute. And then one of the angels says, can we sing for him? And and God says, yes, you can sing for him, but not to the whole world, he says, maybe just to some shepherds. And then they show some angels coming to some little kid shepherds. Ah, it makes me cry just thinking about it. Mm. The creator of all, Mm -hmm. came to earth as a man, as a baby.
2: I get very emotional like that because I have a lot of memories of the church growing up, of special things that happened around that time with people and the Lord, of my family, seeing people come to faith right in the church. And it's like those flood back in. So for me, it's it's remembering that and then also recognizing that I have a faithful Savior and I get pretty choked up sometimes. Yeah, nothing wrong with that.
1: Greg B.? Yeah, it's Philippians chapter 2, which talks about humility, but it talks about the fact that God didn't hold on, Jesus didn't hold on to his, he didn't grasp or held on to it, but became like us, became a man, and was humble unto death. And so coming as the incarnate God, as a babe in a manger, and all that was accomplished as a result of it, Just that, that's what chokes me up.
3: Really quick, one of the most powerful Christmas cards I've ever seen was on the cover of the card was a little baby's hand. And uh, it said, joy to the world or something. But then you opened it up, and it was a grown man's hand that had been pierced. Mm. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Why did he come as a little baby? So he could die, just as you said, Tom, as a man.
2: Mm. There's a great video. It's also a little kids. Maybe you've seen it. And they're around the nativity, and they start fighting over the baby Jesus. And one little girl grabs the, the doll that's in there and holds on to it, and others are trying to take it away. What I like about that is this. The kind of enthusiasm in those kids for being close to that baby is pretty astounding. And I wish we would be that enthusiastic about getting close to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So good. Thank you,
0: Chris. She said, thank you, Bill, for teaching me so much about our Lord Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas to you, too. It's really sweet. Yes.
2: Yeah. Nice. yeah.
0: Now it's my turn to get choked up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I showed my wife the card that um, the older woman that we pray for oh gave yeah. us, and uh, it was just really special. That that teared her up. Mm. Love well, it. thank you ev- all you guys.
3: It's a pleasure to serve in this room with you. And Merry Christmas to all of you. Merry Christmas. Yeah, likewise. To
0: you. And that's a big thanks to Wyatt over here
3: because without him,
0: we got nothing. We know where the real power lies. You think your mics go on without him? No, That's right. I do a little nod to him, and your mics don't go on.
1: So that's the way it works. Is that what happened?
0: All right. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.